what I want to do is obviously talk about this idea of suffering and, and leadership. And um, uh, I've been doing some reading on the background of this, and I actually want to just start with this idea. Uh, and, uh, you know, on the page are two thinkers here. On the right is uh, Dr. Viktor Frankl, who some of you may be familiar with. He wrote a, a very famous book, Man's Search for Meaning, which is based on his, uh, his experience in the, in the Nazi concentration camps. And in that, that uh, book, he, he quotes Fyodor Dostoevsky, who's on the left. So I gotta, I gotta show both, both guys to give him credit. And Dostoevsky said, there's only one thing that I dread, not to be worthy of my suffering. And um, I read that and I was like, wow, I thought that was an awesome quote. I'm really not sure what it means, but it sounds sounds really deep. So I thought I'd start out with that to kind of say, hey, there's some depth to this to this notion of suffering that we're going to talk about, especially as we link it to leadership. Um, but it's not clear; it's it's murky, and so I want to I want to kind of go on a bit of an exploration with all of you. And this is definitely in very much in the context of the Christian intellectual tradition. And so whenever we start in that context, we should always turn to scripture, and. So here's just a, a quick quote um, from John's Gospel, and uh, you know what it implies in you know in the both in the in the picture and in the citation is this idea that one you know in the Christian tradition Christ the way he accomplishes his mission is actually through leadership, and that he, Christ leads and he also suffers, and that these two phenomena actually are quite closely related. Um, so so. Scripture reveals this to us, and I think it's important also to take a look at Scripture speaking more broadly, and particularly the Gospels of the New Testament as almost a leadership manual. That if you want to know about leadership, look to not only the explicit words of Jesus in the Gospels, because he articulates a leadership philosophy, but also look at his, at his behavior. Look at the example. And what you see in Jesus is a perfect integration of his moral principles and his leadership principles and his behavior. And so I think that's one of the draws uh, for him as a leader. But what's also interesting in the, the Gospels reveal to us that that as is God's way is that God is not coercing or manipulating us and that God is actually drawing us to himself by means of leadership. That leadership is the method that's that God gets in touch with his people, whether it's in the Old Testament and the people of Israel, or in the New Testament in Christ's uh, followers and the call to, to Israel and all the Gentiles, is that it's always a proposal, and I'm using the words of St. John Paul II here, is, is that God always proposes, he never imposes, and that, that God in his attracting humanity to himself is using leadership. And one of the things that leadership does is it respects the freedom of the other, it respects the freedom of the follower, and this is also a function of God's nature: is love, is that you can't coerce love. Um, and so, so in the gospel, what we have is a proposal from God to humanity, and that proposal draws not only on the notion of freedom and love, but on the notion of leadership. And so, it's the gospels really are treasure troves of leadership insights. So I would encourage everybody to, to put the lens of leadership on the gospels. And one, you'll learn about leadership. And two, you'll also, you, you'll get insights into these stories that are so familiar to us uh, from a different perspective and enrich you know, what you pull out of it, what you pull out of your, your, your reading of scripture. Okay, so the idea for this, for this discussion
came came up when I was teaching an elective on Christian theology and leadership. And one of the discussions I was having with my students was, you know, if you know, the question came up, and I'm not sure if I formulated it or actually one of my students uh, um, asked it. It must have been me because it's such a brilliant question. But um, uh, I, that is a joke. So, uh, but uh, the question was, if Jesus had not suffered, would he have attracted as many followers? And the, the unanimous answer to that question among the class was no. I mean, it was almost an immediate reaction, which I thought was interesting. And to be honest, I think my students were right. But then the follow-on question was, well, why does, why does suffering work for leadership? What's attractive about that? You know, and I reflect on, my, on myself. The reality is I'm not terribly interested in suffering. And so why would a leader who not only suffered greatly himself, but promised suffering to his followers, why would that person attract any followers at all? It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. So, um, so what I want to do in this in this discussion is actually, you know, we're going to focus on scripture, but we're also going to take a look at it through the lens of a couple of different thinkers, four thinkers actually that I'd like to propose, uh, two of which I think I've mentioned already: St. John Paul II, Dr. Frankel, um, C.S. Lewis, who's a famous Christian writer, and then also a, a name that many people may not be familiar with, which is a, a man named Father Walter Chiswick, and he's a, a, a Jesuit priest who is alive in the 20th century. So what these four people have in common is their existence during what might be called the century of suffering. So much, you know, incalculable suffering went on in the 20th century, and all of them were affected by it profoundly. And because of that, I think you could say they might have their doctorates in suffering, but I think they help us, their writing and their thought help us to reflect on uh, the idea of suffering and, and how it's related to leadership. Um, so what I'd like to do is, is turn first to St. John Paul II. And so in 1984, he writes a document called Salvifici, if I'm saying this right, Dolores, Salvifici Dolores, which is salvific suffering saving suffering, if that makes any sense. Um, and in the beginning of that apostolic letter, he focuses on this line from St. Paul's letter to the Colossians. And St. Paul says, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. Um, and so, it, and again, so we say, okay, it seems strange that, that people would flock to a leader that promises suffering. And this seems strange in its own right, this quote from St. Paul, because Christians believe that Jesus is God. Jesus is the perfect man. And so it seems like St. Paul, Paul is implying some imperfections on the part of Jesus, on the way he conducted his mission, that there's something that could be lacking in Christ's afflictions. But I don't think that's St. Paul's the, the thrust of St. Paul's point. Um, I think he sees the perfection in Christ in, in the letter of the Romans. He says, all have sinned, but one who's Christ. Um, but what he's commenting on is the method of the redemption, is that the redemption is not just a work of Christ by himself, but it includes our work. It includes our efforts. It includes our suffering, actually. Um, so it's a very interesting point that, that the mission of the redemption, the Redeemer, unfolds over time. And because of that, um, the, the followers that he calls to himself can participate in that redemption through their own suffering. So followers can participate in the redemption. And as I said earlier, redemption on the part of the redemptive work on the part of Jesus is a work of leadership. He uses leadership as his method to attract people. And when he attracts people, when he calls his own disciples, one of his first public acts is to call them 
and to ask them to be leaders. Come follow me and I will make you fishers of men, uh, is the quote from Matthew and Mark and Luke, actually. And so the call to discipleship is a call to leadership. They're two sides of the same coin, coin so to speak. And what's interesting is, is that the Gospels depict Jesus's leadership. Um, and it seems hard for us to say, well, how can we, we believe Jesus is the son of God, God incarnate, the God man, God himself. How can we hope to follow Jesus? But the reality is, is that our, the, the source of our leadership comes from the same source of Jesus's leadership. And we think of Jesus as the leader par excellence. But one of the things that is very clear in the gospels that is that Jesus is a follower also. That Jesus is the follower of God the Father. If you go to John's gospel, it says it over a dozen times that Jesus is, he, he never gets tired of telling us he's a follower. You know, I am the follower of the Father. And it's probably most dramatically, you know, acted out in the, uh, the Gospels where they talk about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, Father, not my will be done, but your will be done. That, that Jesus is the radically obedient follower of the Father. And through that followership, he becomes a leader. And this is exactly what happens with followers of Jesus, is that they're called to be followers of Jesus, but because of that call, they are called to be, to be leaders as well. And so when we look to the Gospels for leadership advice, for leadership insights, it's not just Jesus that, we, that is, you know, is depicted, the leadership of Jesus that's depicted in the Gospels, it's our leadership that, can be, to be, that is depicted in the Gospels as well. Okay, so, um, so to follow up, uh, you know, in St. John Paul II's letter, he makes this, this assertion, which I think is pretty striking. He says, Christ leads us to the kingdom of the Father through the very heart of his suffering. And so John Paul II links suffering um, to the leadership of Jesus in a very direct way. And so I guess the question becomes, how? How does this make any sense? Um, and it goes, goes back to, to our previous questions. Why would somebody be attracted to a leader that promises suffering? And so... Uh, I think that's a complicated question, and I don't want to say I have all the answers, but I'm going to give it give it my best shot here. So, um, so I, I'd like to break this down into four parts. So, I want to throw out some definitions, talk about leadership a little bit, because um, there's a lot of ideas about leadership out there. So, I just want to set a set a simple context for that, and then talk about some some really key terms like love and sacrifice and suffering. And then we'll focus on suffering, the origin of suffering and the purpose of suffering. And then, lastly, we'll we'll tie this, the, the idea of suffering and link it to leadership, okay? So, um, so for our definition, so let's just talk about leadership a little bit. And so this is not anything complex. I, you know, lead, the leadership consulting industry right now is a $40 billion a year industry. And there's a lot of, a lot of noise in that industry. And a, a lot of it's good, not all of it's good. Um, and I don't want to add too much to the, to the noise. One author says there's, there's over a thousand definitions in that industry of leadership and more than 40 full-blown theories of leadership. So I'm not going to propose a very complicated, esoteric notion of leadership or theory of leadership. I just want to make some, uh, you know, provide a basic schematic that we can use as a context for our discussion. So, so I break it down into four parts. First, I say, hey, there's leadership in, as, as instruction. And these are four parts that are, that are kind of ascending in power in terms of the impact a, leadership, a leader can make. So, so a leader can instruct his or her followers and the follower, the reaction of the followers, okay, that makes sense. Um, I, I understand that. That seems to, to be rational. 
Um, and then you have leadership by example. And so that, that's the next step up where the reaction of the follower is, hey, I see it. I see how it works. I can do it. Not only do I understand it and make sense, you know, you're giving me the example to, to kind of convince me that, hey, this is something that can be done. All right. Next level could be inspirational leadership. And this is where a leader is able to tap into the desires and the aspirations of the follower. And so it's not just the that the follower has confidence that he or she can do a particular mission, but the follower wants to do that mission, that, that there's some real power here when we enlist a person's desire to do something. And then the last level I'll point out is this idea of compelling leadership. And so the reaction of the follower, and this is almost kind of the holy grail of, of what a leader wants to accomplish in the, in the, you know, in the conscience of their follower is that I'm compelled to do that. I must do that. I am the one through whom this mission is going to be accomplished. And that's a very, very high, high bar, high level of leadership, but better yet, you know, better than more than just I, one follower is a team. We are the ones that must do that. So, so how does a leader get to that level of impact with his or her followers? And um, so I want to hit, you know, I think the reality is, is that level of leadership um, involves suffering, that suffering is, is linked to that. And hopefully we'll be able to, to lay out how that's the case. Um, a couple of uh, a couple of other definitions: love, sacrifice, and suffering. And I guess before I talk about this, one one thing that I'd like to say also in a broader context is one of one of the the common approaches to uh, to leadership theory in Christian circles is an idea of of servant leadership. And that's one thing that I'm not going to talk a lot about tonight, not because I don't like it, because I think it's great. And it really captures the explicit teaching of Jesus who we see in Mark's gospel that's counterintuitive for the world is that, you know, the Gentiles leaders lorded over them. But for, for you, for my followers, you know, the, the great ones must serve and become the slave of others. And so, so the ideas that I'm talking about today, I think are very close and related to servant leadership. But I think also I'd like to take a different angle on this also, one that's maybe a little less emphasized. And this can help shed, these ideas can help shed light on servant leadership. So what has a lot to do with servant leadership is love. And uh, so St. Thomas Aquinas defines love as, as willing the good of the other, which is a very terse, concise, clear description of love. You can't get much much more clarity than that. But I think in that terseness, it, 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 it doesn't capture the power of love. And, um, and I think we, when we talk about love, we have to talk about desire. And, and unfortunately, English is kind of an impoverished language when it comes to love. You know, if you go to the Latin, there's three terms, amore, delectio, and caritas, which is the highest form of love, love, love of God. Um, so Latin's got a bunch of terms. Greek has a bunch of terms. Uh, Storge is, is the word for love of affection in Greek. Philia is brotherly love. Eros, which we're familiar with, you know, the root of erotic in, in English, is the love of desire. So in, in the Greek, um, eros is, it includes, you know, sexual desire, sexual love, but it's more than that. It's any love of desire. And then lastly, you have this idea of agape, and that's that's self-sacrificial love. And so, so there's so much there, you know, we could talk for a long time about love. So, but I do want to capture a little of the depth there and say, so it's, it's, you know, not only desire for what is good, but desire for what is good for another person also. So that's kind of the back and forth between Eros and Agape. Uh, one thing that's almost poetic with this is uh, St. Augustine in the fourth century. He says that love is the weight that moves me. I go wherever my love points me, so to speak. And I think he's talking about Eros 
and love of desire there. But Eros becomes purified in the Christian context and reaches its height when that desire for for the object becomes a desire that's so strong that you wish the good of the object even over your own good. And that leads into the idea of sacrifice. And so agapeic love, you know, ends up in this idea of sacrifice where you surrender something for the sake of something else. And so that's obviously very closely related. And then there's this idea of suffering, which is often related to sacrifice too. When we surrender something of ourselves, a lot of times that includes pain. And so suffering, a quick definition is to excuse me, endure pain or endure evil. So I want to spend a little time, obviously, on this notion of, of suffering before we get into its relationship with leadership. And so one of the reasons that I think we have to talk about suffering is, well, you know, they talk about it in The Princess Bride. So everybody's got to talk about suffering. But uh, I love The Princess Bride. I don't know, you know, when I'm dressing college students, I don't know if they know things like this because they're so young. I think Princess Bride has pretty much permeated the culture. So I'm assuming you're familiar with the great philosopher Wesley here. But um, but I love this dialogue. And, uh, you know, the reality is suffering is a universal experience. Life is pain, he tells his Princess Buttercup. And anyone who says differently is selling something. And uh, and John Paul II in in his letter in the South Vivici Dolores, he says the same thing. Suffering is a universal experience. We all experience it, whether that's suffering as physical pain or that's suffering as moral pain. He would say, uh, he would say moral pain as the, as the suffering of the soul. And it's something that's intimidating. There's a darkness to suffering. Um, and, he, and John Paul II says, we shudder before it. And you know, there's a depth to suffering that seems to almost overwhelm us because we're not sure if we, if we can stand up to it. We're not sure where our limit of suffering actually is. But the reality is, is that we all experience it, even in our in our country where we're relatively affluent and we have, you know, although we have some, some bitter arguments, we don't have fighting in the streets too much, although there's been some recently. Um, but even, even in the most, you know, unperturbed life, suffering pushes in either, you know, throughout life and certainly at the end of life. And so it's something that for, for the leadership of Jesus, it's something that he has to address. For Jesus to have a credible leadership message, he has to address the phenomenon of suffering. And so I want to get into that mystery a little bit. And, you know, so, so what John Paul II says is, hey, you know, when we suffer, we ask the question, why? Why should we suffer? Why? What's the point? And so I think that why can be answered in two different ways. And I'll, uh, so I put this into two different parts. When we ask why, we can talk about the origin of suffering. Where does it come from? And then we can talk about the point. You know, where is it going? Why? You know, what is the effect of suffering? So let's focus on, on the origin of suffering first. And so let's turn to the Bible to do that. And we can see, we can see uh, suffering depicted in both the Old and the New Testament. You know, the book of Job in the Old Testament is, is a part of Jewish wisdom literature. And, and it's a very famous story where Job is an affluent and, and happy man. He has, he has many material possessions and he has a large, happy family. And so the story tells us that Satan comes along and he takes all of Job's possessions. And not only does he do that, he takes all of Job's family. He kills them all. And then lastly, he doesn't leave Job himself alone. Lastly, he inflicts grievous um, physical suffering on Job through, through sickness and boils. 
And so, so the dialogue in the book of Job, after the, all that happens to Job, is a dialogue between Job and three of his friends. And so three of his friends come to see Job in his misery and suffering, and they're silent for a week because he's so, so terribly downtrodden by the suffering. But finally, after a week, they start talking. And Job complains bitterly, saying, why should I suffer like this? And, he, and what's, what's striking about Job's complaints is he complains to God and about God. It's not that he's blaming other things. He's blaming God for his suffering. And his three friends are taken aback by this. And they say, no, you're wrong. You know, God is a God of justice. And, and, and suffering is always a function uh, as a punishment for sin, is that the sinful suffer be due to their injustice, and it can be no other way. And so you have a back and forth between Job and his friends for many, many chapters. And uh, at the end, you have a, a son of one of the friends says, you know, this Job, you are totally disrespectful. You are questioning questioning the awesomeness and the transcendence of, of God. Um, and so uh, so before we get to the resolution of that, I do want to back up and say, you know, it seems like, you know, the, the Jewish and Christian tradition putting suffering at the, uh, you know, in the context of sin and justice, it seems like there is a lot of truth to that. And you can see this in the question in John's gospel, too. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. And so what we see is, is that the disciples are saying the same thing as, as uh, Job's friends, is that, that suffering is a function of sin and, and justice, and it is just to punish the sinner from God's perspective, because he's God is just. Our, so, um, so, and it seems like there's truth, that it speaks to our experience too, is, is that, you know, what is the most potent source of suffering, but, you know, the cruelty, the injustice, the indifference that we as humans show to one another on a daily basis. So it seems like there's certainly some truth to that idea that sin has a lot to do with injustice. But what Job's cry and what Jesus' answer to the question implies is, is that there's more to the story. It's not just about justice. It's not just about punishing sin because the reality is, and we see this all over our own experience and all throughout history, is that the innocent suffer. And what's interesting, at the end of the book of Job, Job then comes face to face with his Lord. And God says, how dare you question me because I am, I am transcendent. How do you know? what I think and how can you make, you know, judge, you know, my judgment, so to speak. And, uh, and Job's response to that is, um, you're right. I shouldn't, I shouldn't try to make, I should not try to be in the business of judging the almighty. But the last chapter, God turns and, and talks to Job's uh, friends and says, you know what? Job is right. Job spoke well of me and you should not have argued against, against him. And so, so God also vindicates Job's position. And actually, in, as the story ends, Job is, is restored to all, all, you know, all the things that Satan had taken away from him. And so uh, in the quote from John's Gospel here, neither he nor his parents sinned. It is so that the works of God might be made visible through him. And so suffering, you know, it's not, you know, certainly there's an aspect of sin and justice to it, but it transcends that. We know that the innocent suffer. And this is a mystery so great that it includes God himself, that God in the person of Jesus Christ is affected by suffering also. He suffered profoundly. Um, and so, so how do we make sense of this? You know, is that, you know, you know, how do we make sense of the origin? And I think C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, he helps us. And not only does he have some ideas about, uh, about 
you know, suffering itself, he sets a context for us, you know, and this is, this is, you know, the back and forth between Job and Lewis says, Hey, you know, on the one hand, if God is wiser than we, than, than we are, his judgment must differ from ours on many things, not least on what's good and evil and what seems to us good may therefore not be good in his eyes. And what seems to us evil may not be evil. And so, so the idea I think that, that Lewis is presenting to us is the idea that we have to think more broadly about this. It's not just about sin and injustice or punishment for, for injustice. It's about more than that. Um, and we have to really try and put on, put on the, uh, the eyes of, of God in order to, to, to penetrate some of the depths of the mystery of suffering. Okay. So, and I think looking at trying to figure out what is the point of suffering what is its effect what is the point what is the purpose is another angle that helps us get at this origin of suffering also that this origin that's so deep and profound that it even even touches the second person of the holy trinity okay and so so what i'm going to do is take a look at a couple of insights that that these authors have all of whom have, who have experienced suffering in very profound ways. So remember, C.S. Lewis is the first person I bring up to kind of address this. And he says uh, he, he actually, you know, he was a, an infantry soldier in World War I and saw, you know, maybe some of the most depraved and, and horrible conditions of suffering in the history of the 20th century. And so coming out of that experience, as he's writing, you know, at Oxford and Cambridge, he's, he's writing theological works that is in addition to his fictional works that are probably more, more um, well known. And he puts the, the question of suffering in the context of, of human will in relation to the will of God. And so he goes back to the book of Genesis, back to the beginning. And he says, you know, the first sin was Adam and Eve trying to assert their will over God. And so, so for, the, for the human being to be happy, uh, each individual human being kind of has to reverse that process. They need to subject their will to the will of God. And it's in that subjection, paradoxically, that humans find their truest happiness. And so that's kind of the background to these, these quotes that, he, that, that I have here from Lewis. And he says, how impossible it is to enact the surrender of the self by doing what we like. And then he goes on to say, everyone has noticed how hard it is to turn to God when everything is going well for us. We have all we want is a terrible saying when all does not include God. We find God in interruption. And so this is, this is the problem of our sinful fallen existence is, is that, you know, if things are going well, we humans have a tendency not to really care too much about God. And so, so Lewis, Lewis observes that and he says, you know what, unfortunately, suffering is the siren call out of that. Um, and he says, no doubt pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. It may lead to final and unrepentant rebellion because the reality is, is the person's still free. Um, but it gives the only opportunity the bad man or the bad person can have for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. And unfortunately, I can see the truth of this in my own life. And we can see it in the context of a simple observation that, you know, I don't learn from my successes. Um, you know, when, I, when, I'm, when I'm successful, I'm very happy, um, but I don't learn a heck of a lot of it. But when I fail, um, there is a profound suffering association, associated with failing. And that's, that's where I learn. And that's where when we suffer, you know, in a certain sense, and this is not to say that God is punishing suffering, but through suffering, God is calling out to us. And he's calling out to us to ask that question, why? Why am I suffering? What do I have to learn 
from this particular situation. I think Lewis is hit, hitting on that, that issue as he approaches the idea. Um, another approach is from St. John Paul II again in Sal Salvifici Dolores. And this is a really interesting idea that I had never thought of before I read this. And he says, this outlook especially highlights the truth concerning the creative character of suffering. The sufferings of Christ created the good of the world's redemption. And so what John Paul II is saying here is that suffering is productive, that good things are produced by suffering, um, great things even. And, um, and this we can link to back to Dr. Frankel's observations. And so in, in Man's Search for Meaning, he, he asks the question, um, I, you know, in using Dostoevsky's words, you know, uh, you know, am I worthy of my sufferings? And this is the answer he provides. He says, I be, became acquainted with those martyrs whose behavior in camp, whose suffering and death bore witness to the fact that the last inner freedom cannot be lost. It can be said that they were worthy of their sufferings. The way they bore their sufferings was a genu genuine inner achievement. It is a spiritual freedom which cannot be taken away that makes life meaningful and purposeful. If there is a meaning in life at all, there must be a meaning in suffering. Without suffering and death, human life cannot be complete. Um, and so this is, these are the words of a man who has suffered profoundly, but is also an extraordinarily thoughtful man. He was, you know, he was a practicing Jew. He was also, you know, you know, a leading psychiatrist in his time. And in his reflections on the absolute nadir, the absolute depth that humans experience in the concentration camps, and humans were still free. And there was still, despite the fact that everything had been taken away from these people, all their hopes, all their dreams had been wiped out. There was still something that they could achieve. And what they could achieve was, was a dignity in the face of suffering, that they could handle their suffering in a noble manner. And he said that choice was always there. And many people didn't live up to the choice, that they weren't, they didn't, you know, they weren't worthy of their suffering and they chose the path of animals and they forgot their own dignity. He said, but that was not something that happened to everybody. And even if it was on, only achieved by one person, although he said it was achieved by more, it demonstrates the fact that even in the worst circumstances of the most horrific suffering possible, we can still do something good, is that we can bear that suffering with dignity and fortitude. Um, it's really, really, some really powerful thoughts that he shares in that book, so I highly recommend it. Um, okay, so I wanna get to Father Chizik because he says something similar about that. So Father Chizik is this really interesting figure from the 20th century. He's born in 1905, Shenandoah, Pennsylvania. So he's about three hours drive from, uh, from West Point. And um, after kind of a rebellious youth, he decides to become a Jesuit priest, which was shocking to his family, actually. If you, you read it, he's written two books, um, uh, With God in Russia, and then, uh, which is his biography, and then uh, another book called He Leadeth Me, which is really his spiritual biography. So With God in Russia kind of details the history of what happened to him. And then He Leadeth with Me tells him what he was thinking and what he was praying and understanding while all that stuff was going on. Him. So if you ever read those books, read With God in Russia first. That sets the context for He Leadeth Me. Um, so he, so he uh, decides to join the Jesuits. He, he wants to, he responds to the, to the call of Pope Pius XI in the 1930s to go and evangelize Russia. Goes to Rome, learns Russian, learns the uh, Byzantine uh, liturgy, and gets sent to Poland in 1938. Talk about time. He can't get into the Soviet Union in 1938. 
Um, but I guess luckily for him, because that's where he wanted to go, war breaks out in 39 and the Soviet Union comes to him. They, he's in Eastern Poland and the Soviet Union invades Poland and all of a sudden, wow, he's in, he's in the Soviet Union. So he travels 1500 miles to, uh, to uh, the Ural Mountains to, uh, to begin his work, of, his missionary work among, among the Russians. And after about two months, he's arrested, <laughs> brought back to Moscow. He's put into jail in Moscow in the Lubyanka prison run by the KGB. He's in solitary confinement for five years, and then he's, he's, uh, he is convicted of being a Vatican spy and sent to the Soviet Gulag for 15 years. Uh, so this is a man that, that, that knows the piercing agony of suffering. And if you want to, you want to read about it, take a look at his books. But one, so he's a, he's a person that's suffered, but he's also reflected on that suffering, I think, in some profound ways and in some very practical ways too. So he starts out and says, it's much easier to see the redemptive role of pain and suffering in God's plan if you're not actually undergoing pain and suffering. So I think that's his way of saying, hey, if you see someone suffering, don't tell them it's for their own good, because uh, you're probably not going to get a good reaction. But he says, if you can learn to see the role of pain and suffering in relation to God's redemptive plan for the universe and each individual soul, your attitude must change. You don't shun it when it comes to you, but you bear it in the measure grace has given you. No action, however insignificant, if accepted and performed as from God's hand and in conformity with his will, is anything other than redemptive and a sharing in the great work of salvation begun by Christ's passion. So there's a couple of elements here in here that I think are important. One is I think he's very much in line with Dr. Frankel. He says that, you know, you can bear this, you can bear suffering, suffering with grace. Um, and he also says that there's a there's a, a function of the will also is that he saw himself as a very willful person and that in his suffering God was breaking his will and so he's kind of aligned with C.S. Lewis there but he's pointing beyond so he's saying that you be, can become a better person like Dr. Frankel is but he's he's pointing beyond um, just your own character and he's pointing to this work of redemption that uh, you know anything other than redempt than redemptive and a sharing in the great work of salvation begun by Christ's passion um, is that the human person can participate in that and he says a little bit more which I'd like to share with you again there's a picture of him so why pain and suffering the answer lies not in God's will but in the world in which we live and try to follow his will Christ's redemptive act did not its, of itself restore all things. It simply made the work of redemption possible. So the world has not been changed overnight. And it's the world in which we seek to follow Christ's example that it afflicts us as it afflicted him. And this reminds, reminds of us, us of that earlier scripture quote, if they persecute me, they will persecute you as well. But it also brings to mind, you know, Paul's sentiment to the Colossians that in our suffering, we can join that suffering to that of Christ. And when we do, you know, it is it is a real participate in Christ's redemptive um, work for the salvation of the world. So it gives enormous meaning and purpose to our suffering, not only to make ourselves better, but to make the world around us better also. Suffering also can lead to joy, the scripture tells us. You will, have, you will have pain, but your pain will turn into joy. That our suffering, Jesus is making a promise to us here, that our suffering will be worth it. And we see this in, in Acts. Um, and so, so this is in, in describing the disciples when they, are first, when they first 
first experience of persecution that Jesus promises, and they rejoice. They left the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they had been found worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. And so what's interesting here, I think, is we see both you know, an element of joy in relation to suffering, and the further context is love, is that they were rejoicing in their suffering because they knew that it was done for the sake of the one they loved, the sake of, of their Lord, okay? All right, so that's a lot of stuff that I work, went through really quickly on suffering. There's a lot more, and I, I really would encourage you to, to, to read scripture in these various sources to think about it. Um, and, uh, um, but I, I do want to, cause we, we're I'm running out of time quickly. So I do want to, I do want to save some time for question and answers, but I do want to get to this last part of the discussion, which is, which is the relation of, of suffering and leadership. So just to go back and, and review a little bit, you know, so the call to Christian discipleship is a call to leadership and the call to call to Christian discipleship is a call to suffering and it's a call to the work of redemption which is also a work of leadership, that Christ, the mission of Christ is to reconcile all of humanity to God the Father. And he does that through leadership by leading, leading others to God the Father. And so the question is, is, how does suffering help accomplish that mission? And I think it does in a number of ways. And I'll just list a, a couple here. There are probably more that, that I'm not getting to. Um, but first, it's just the, the observation that great achievement is born of struggle. You know, nothing great, you know, one, one leadership author has said, nothing great has ever been achieved without a team. And I would also offer that nothing great is, uh, is achieved without some measure of suffering. That thing, you know, great achievements are great because of the suffering that has to be waded through, so to speak, to get to that achievement. And a leader that's able to suffer in pursuit of a great great mission, so to speak, manifests the importance of that mission, number one. And it's interesting is that leadership is necessary for great achievements. You know, leadership is the mechanism through which missions and tasks that can't be done by an individual are accomplished by by a group. And the leaders provide the unity necessary to, to accomplish a great task. And if they're willing to suffer for that, um, they point out the importance of that task. Um, Another thought is, is this traditional quote from Tertullian, who is a, uh, a third century um, Greek father of the church. And he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so, so the martyrs, um, you know, martyros in the Greek is to witness. And so the martyrs in their sacrifice, you know, for their faith in Jesus are doing something. They're, they're, they're playing a leadership role also is that they're attracting others to Christ. And what they're, the way they're doing it is they're pointing out and saying, hey, there's something important going on here. You need to look at this person, Jesus Christ, because he's so important that I'm willing to lay down my life for him. And so this, this suffering of the martyrs is something that says, uh, that shouts out for attention. And it's what attracts other people to the message of the of the early church. So I think there's, a, there's an aspect of that. And so it's not that people want to suffer, but when they see suffering, they say, oh, there's something worthwhile going on here if someone's willing to suffer for it. Um, so here's another, another quote from St. John Paul II's apostolic letter. And I think it's similar to, to what Dr. Frankel and Father Chiswick are saying. Suffering contains a special call to virtue, which man must exercise on his own part. And this is the virtue of perseverance and bearing whatever disturbs and causes harm. And so what St. John Paul II is saying here is, is that the person of 
the person who can persevere through suffering develops the virtues and the habits necessary to overcome suffering. And that is a person that is that is admirable. And it's a person of spiritual maturity is the way he describes it. And we're attracted to people like that. And not only are we attracted to people like that, we're attracted to leaders who have those characteristics that have those character traits because one of the most important aspects of being able to lead an organization or a team is winning the trust of your followers and so a, a person of great you know moral character a person of moral excellence a person that's able to overcome suffering is a person that people are likely to invest their trust in and, and are likely to follow as a result of a trusting relationship. And so I think suffering is a call to develop the virtues which enable trust on the part of followers for to a leader. Suffering also builds up authority. So, uh, and this is interesting. So, you know, this quote from Matthew's gospel here, anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And prior to that line, Jesus says something along the line of anybody who's, who doesn't value me above, above mother and father and family and everything else is not worthy of me. And the reality is, is that the only reason Jesus can make that statement and not get laughed out of the room um, is because he has suffered as well. And he is he has because of that suffering, he has he has built up an authority to make those demands on his followers. And so suffering builds up the authority of the leader. OK. All right. A last last note. Um, we see this in John's gospel, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And so, so we see, you know, in the highest level of love, we see both suffering and sacrifice. And, um, and love as a motivation for leadership is extraordinarily powerful. It's dangerous, it's risky on the part of a leader because if you fake that um, and your followers find out, they'll never forgive you for it. But if you don't fake it, if you really, you know, place your concern for others over concern for yourself, uh, that is one of the most powerful leadership motivations there is. And, and this is, is really, in, in a sense, quite natural. And I've experienced myself. When a leader cares about me, and maybe even more than himself or herself, well, I care about that leader. And I care about the mission that they're trying to achieve. Um, and it's powerful. And that's happened to me in my life. It's happened to me in my career. And frankly, there's nothing I won't do for a leader that loves me first. And I think so that's, that is the power of, of you know, loving leadership. And that power is demonstrated in suffering. That you know, the leader that's willing to suffer for the good of the mission, the good of the organization, for the good of his or her followers, that is a leader that will have enormous power in motivating their, their followers. So a last quote, just to say, say you know, this leadership stuff really is all over the New Testament and the Old Testament for that. And so uh, just to, to finish with uh, the words of, of the author to the letter of the Hebrews, for it was fitting that he for whom, through, for whom and through whom all things exist in bringing many children to glory should make the leader to their salvation perfect through suffering. So Jesus Christ is made perfect. You know, the man Jesus Christ is made perfect through his suffering. Okay, so a last point. I uh, made perfect through his suffering as a leader too. The last point, and I do want to um, just give you the references that I've used also. So for further reading, a uh, couple of recommendations, uh, scripture, the Bible, book of Job, um, the two books from Father Chizik, with God in Russia and he leadeth we. me. The Problem of Pain is, is a very significant book of C.S. Lewis. 
Selvifici Dolores from St. John Paul II, Man's Search for Meaning, which is a compelling read. And, you know, if you haven't seen The Princess Bride, you need to get that on your movie list. So 